You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hi, I'm Elisa Gardner, host of Develop Your Character, brought to you by Camp Broadway. We'll be bringing you candid conversations with theater educators, industry experts and insiders, and savvy parents geared toward helping culture-loving kids and aspiring artists become great performers on and off stage and at every stage of their lives. Our guest today is Greg Noble, executive producer of Seaview Productions, who became the youngest Tony Award-winning producer on Broadway a few years back with A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. He's since brought us a number of critically acclaimed Broadway productions, among them the current hit Moulin Rouge the Musical, the dramatic double bill Seawall Alight, starring Tom Sturridge and Jake Gyllenhaal, and Jeremy O'Harris's incendiary slave play, which he first produced for New York Theater Workshop. Various off-Broadway credits include the immersive Sweeney Todd that won a Lucille Lortel Award and broke box office records at the Barrow Street Theater, and West End productions include much-praised revivals of Gypsy and Showboat. Greg is also a co-founder of Flying Horse Hospitality, which develops experiential food and beverage concepts on the shoreline of Connecticut. And he's a member of Crane's New York Business Class of 2016's 40 Under 40. Greg, welcome to Develop Your Character. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Great, great. Um, well, given your age, you and, and your impeccable taste, I'm kind of guessing that theater was an early love of yours, an early interest of yours. Yes. And I know that uh, you are also an alumnus of Camp Broadway, yes. one of its most distinguished alumni. Um, <laughs> and you were involved with something called the Lemonade Gang. Is yes, that right? that's right. Kind yep. of one of your early production exactly, efforts. Exactly. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, I grew up right outside of New Haven, uh, Connecticut. Um, and my childhood best friend, Ryan Bloomquist, and I uh, had a dear friend uh, named Brian Kelly, who at a very young age was diagnosed with a very rare um, demyelinating disorder. And at six and seven years old, we didn't quite realize, you know, what exactly was happening to our friend, but we knew something was happening. Like we could visibly see our friend sort of deteriorating from this progressive disease. And we wanted to do something to help. So we did the only thing we knew how to do, which was stir some lemonade together and go out on the corner of the street and sell it. And as Ryan and I got older, you know, we both had a common passion for singing and dancing. And, you know, our family being so close to New York had brought us into the city a lot. So we had an opportunity to see shows. And at a certain point, we were realizing that people were paying for tickets. There was a transactional thing happening <laughs> and those tickets weren't free. And so Ryan and I said, well, you know, if they'll pay to go to this show in New York, why won't they pay and come and see us do a production of Guys and Dolls in the backyard? Um, and so we started selling shows that we would put together with our neighborhood friends. Uh, and over the course of about eight years through our whole, uh, you know, primary education career, the, this grew into a real nonprofit organization called the Lemonade Gang. So you were involved in performing as well. I was producing from a pretty young age. But performing as well? 
I was less good at the performing part. <laughs> I was I was in the high school plays and you know I was in the Lemonade Gang shows, but you know I was not. You know my my counterpart Ryan, who's still my best friend, was the performer and went on to go to NYU and also Camp Broadway alumnus. Yeah, how did you become interested in producing? Was that also growing out of your Camp Broadway experience in some way? Yeah, I think I think I probably arrived at Camp Broadway wanting to be a producer or director at the time. Those those two jobs seemed the same. They're obviously not, right? But, you know, I knew I sort of wanted to be on the other side of it. You know, it was really the Lemonade Gang that taught me about producing and about, you know, putting people together. And while Ryan was much more on the artistic side, teaching everybody how to do, you know, jazz squares and sing on key, my job was to print the programs and make sure people showed up and collect the money at the door. And so I was sort of innately, you know, producing early on without really knowing what the title was. Right. So that was an ambition of yours mm -hmm. or you once you realized what it was. Totally. Totally. <laughs> um, you produced a variety of plays and musicals from new works, bold new works to revivals and some pretty bold revivals as well. I remember cowering a little as uh, Jeremy Seacomb stood on the table <laughs> in front of me seeing that Sweeney Todd, which was fabulous. The, the pie was great, too, mm -hmm. by the way. It was. Bill Yossis's <laughs> pie. The yeah, best. The, Barack Obama chef, yes. right? Yeah. Amazing. Good enough for Barack, good enough for the West Village, you know? <laughs> what draws you to a particular project? It's usually a, a pretty strong and bold reinvention of the form in some way. And that means lots of different things and lots of different scenarios. Um, I'm most interested in, in artists who are breaking the mold, who are doing things that they're not supposed to do. I think we're in a moment right now culturally um, and artistically where all sorts of forms are being broken. Studio models are being broken. TV is being broken. Um, you know, and it, Broadway's catching up to it, right? We're, we're finally getting to the place where non-traditional theater experiences are coming into the commercial space. And we have a next generation of artists who are making work for the space now. And so we're particularly excited by artists like Jeremy O'Harris, who are totally mm -hmm. bucking convention. Um, and then, you know, on the other hand, something that feels very classic, like Sweeney Todd, to do it, you know, that 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 gets re revived on Broadway every 10 years. For this 10-year revival, to do it for, you know, 130 people in a pie shop in the West Village mm. also feels like it's breaking the form. And yeah. that's what we get excited about. Though Sweeney Todd in its day. <laughs> mm -hmm, exactly. And you also, as I mentioned before, you know, you took a, a, a different approach uh, to mm -hmm. that work as well. Is that... Uh, something that you you aim to do to bring something new to classics? Very much, very much. You know, look, we've done, we've been part of shows like the Imelda Staunton-led Gypsy that happened at the Savoy Theater, which was totally gorgeous, and, and we were co-producers on. And that, you know, was so straightforward, right? That was like a proper revival of Gypsy. And that that's in our wheelhouse, too. It, it really just comes down to we just love things that are great. So when you look at the spectrum of it, you know, slave play and that revival of Gypsy, you know, look very different. But for us, it was about introducing audiences to something that they may not have experienced, right? Into like a proper British production of, mm. you know, Gypsy in a gorgeous playhouse is an experience that we we're also excited to bring to people. Yeah, that was an extraordinary production. I've I've never seen a better Mama Rose. She I really, have to agree. She really blew me away. Um, I'm not old enough to have seen Merman, and neither are you. But. No, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. Um, I think the process of collaboration between a producer and artist is a mystery totally. to a lot of people. Even Me too. Some theater, <laughs> 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 even some theater fans. 
even you. Well, tell us, how do you define your role for someone who's not familiar with the specifics? And does that role change depending on the artist, the company you're working with? Definitely, definitely. You know, we sort of always think about our role as producers as being the CEO of the company. Um, and actually the way that, you know, technically Broadway productions are formed, um, it, they are small businesses, right? Each show has its own LLC and like literally is its own company. And the producer sort of sits atop all of that watching over everything. That means, you know, financially, artistically, relationship-wise, making sure every day that this company can can move forward and that it's selling enough tickets to, to do that. Um, you know, our relationship to the artists are vital. Um, we are the ones who are responsible for realizing the director and the uh, writer's vision. You know, they, they one person gets it on stage, one person gets it on the page, one person gets it on stage, and then it's our job to make sure that the universe around that is a happy one, is a cohesive one, that there's a strong brand around it. Um, and at the end of the day, the buck stops with the producer. It's our job to maintain the show, to build the show, to finance the show. Um, you know, so we wear every single hat and we also wear none of the hats because our main job is to make sure that the table around the show are full of experts, the best people in the business for that particular show. And it's not to say that one advertiser or one marketer or general manager is the right person for all of the shows. So for each project and each company, it's a reassembling a whole new table of people to take down the current challenge. Right. I'm curious, how difficult was it to get slave play on Broadway? Was it something that, you know, because of the great acclaim it got and, and all of the buzz surrounding Jeremy O'Hara, still there were people who said, I don't know, is this going to fly on Broadway? Was that a question you asked yourself? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, we believed very much that Jeremy's work needed to be canonized. We saw something happening downtown that I hadn't seen happen in the theater before, right? Like the conversations and the desire to be part of the cultural conversation and the lines around the blocks to get tickets and the people who wouldn't leave the theater lobby because they were talking and the phone calls I'd, and the emails I'd get from folks who had spent two or three hours at dinner with the person that came with, you know, speaking about the play was really unique. And to me, that said, Two things. One was this is an artist who I don't care how old he is, right? Like why wait another 20 years for him to have something else that's ready to go that, you know, to, to finally join the ranks. This is a person that should be in our canon today. Um, and the other part of it was, you know, there was something innately commercial about it, right? To me, the idea of what's commercial and what's not commercial means people are buying tickets. There's an appetite for it. There's a lot of things that end up on Broadway that feel, you know, quote, commercial that nobody ever cared about. And nobody told us they cared about, but it ends up on these 10 blocks. And so the convention of what's commercial and who decides if it's good enough to come here. And this show looks and walks and talks like no other show on Broadway. So it was very challenging and it was a very long period of time. It wasn't like this like darted right to Broadway and, you know, Broadway's arms were wide open to this show. It, they weren't. It took a lot of education. It took a lot of convincing. It took a lot of trust. And ultimately it took the belief of the Schubert organization, which is who is our, you know, fantastic partners at the Golden Theater, who said, we, we understand what this is. We understand that this is important. We understand the cultural conversation and why this deserves to be part of it. Um, and ultimately they were the ones who opened up literally their doors to slave play. Has Broadway, you think, grown mo more open to uh, to controversy? 
generally to shows that may be perceived as uh, inspiring discussion, which is kind of what you want shows to do in a way. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the New York Times led the fall preview with a cover story about um, slave play. Uh-huh. And the cover story was, is Broadway ready for slave play? Right. Um, and it was a great article. Uh, the reporter, Michael Paulson, had spent about three months with us pretty in depth in the room, um, in the rehearsal room, in team meetings, in the advertising room, in my investor pitch meetings, like everywhere, and wrote a very in-depth uh, story about the show, which uh, I, of course, found interesting. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, it was a great question to ask, right? Like, is Broadway ready? And we learned pretty quickly that they were, right? And I think producers and the larger sort of institution of the business, it's our responsibility to decide what's happening, right? What are we putting? What, what content are we making available on the Broadway stages for our audiences? And my hope is that, like, slave play convinces other producers that this kind of work, this kind of incendiary work, this kind of challenging work, this sort of controversial shore work um, can be part of the conversation. Because I think what our audiences are telling us is they're ready for more challenging work. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, I mean, it seems to be a hit right now. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about what you've learned working with so many different creative people, um, as you've said. Can you tell us about the the professional and the personal give and take that goes into making a show work? Mm. Yeah, you know, it's we become the conduit to the reality making, right? And so it's a pretty hard line to walk, right? Because it's sort of activating both sides of a producer's mind, right? It's managing the finances and the financial reality and the economics with the creative vision and being able to have real creative conversations with the team um, and make sure that they feel like they've sort of met a match creatively, right? And to sit across the table from somebody like, our extraordinary director, Robert O'Hara, who's also a prolific playwright, mm-hmm. and challenge ideas and discuss ideas and find solutions around things we just can't realize for whatever reason um, is a really sort of daunting part of the task because you got to hold up your side of the bargain. A, you got to deliver on what you say you're going to deliver on. And B, you have to, if, if, I have, if I'm going to tell Robert that we can't give him something that he wants, that his brilliant brain created, I better have a pretty good reason why we can't. <laughs> um, and, and to hold our ground, right? And to make sure that, like, to really have a point of view about what is going to make the show successful. Because from where I stand, getting a critic's pick and getting a lovely review and getting all these things is fine. But we're in the commercial theater business, right? I'm not a nonprofit theater producer. It's not my job to make the most daring work that nobody else can make, right? It's also to make a profit for our investors and to get their money back so they come back and do this again so our Broadway can can sustain as an industry. And so it's a very fine line, especially when we're talking about sort of what I consider to be high art shows. We're not talking about a jukebox musical, right? We're talking about something that is like a proper, precious piece of art that, you know, we can't we can't mess up. Precious in the good sense. Yes, totally. <laughs> totally. Um, I would also imagine juggling your production career with Flying Horse would require some multitasking uh-huh. skills, pretty serious ones. Was that always a strength of yours? And even if it was, have you found you've honed those skills more in your experience as a producer? No, I mean, it's not been a skill of mine. I, I don't think it is a skill of mine now. Oh. Um it's a challenge, right? Uh, you know, and I think the thing about the theater business, as so many can attest to, is you just never know 
when the opportunities are going to come, especially given the sort of current real estate moment we have on Broadway, which is to say there's way more shows than there are buildings. And so when you get a Broadway theater, you make your show. It doesn't matter what else is going on. The theater gods don't care that you're <laughs> busy with a restaurant in Connecticut. It doesn't matter. So, you know, it's been through developing really extraordinary partnerships. Um, I don't do anything alone. I do everything in partnership. Um, both of my businesses have fantastic partners on CV Productions, a woman named Jana Shea, on Flying Horse, a guy called Eamon Roche. Um, and our teams are fantastic, right? Flying Horse has amazing people on the ground in Connecticut. Our team here, Julia and Carly, are extraordinary. And so it's about, for, from where I stand, it's about, again, sort of like our team building, not like rah-rah team building, but like actually putting a team together and then a little rah-rah after, <laughs> um, is the same on the company side too, right? Like we need to make sure that our foundation is strong and our people are strong. And then that allows me to go flit about and you know, find the projects and you know, find the opportunities and spend time with artists, which is a thing that I need to be doing. That's how I spend most of my day, which I'm so lucky to do because right. we have you know, partners who are really making sure the operation is running. So to me, it's all about, you know, the people. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, beyond producing, what other aspects of the industry are you invested in at this point? It's, um, you know, it's, it's all producing. It's all, uh -huh. you know, it's, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the intersection of technology, um, you know, in our space, uh, you know, but from a, from a, from a how I spend my time, right, it's, it's it's producing. It's full it's full time sort of developing artists, developing new shows and sort of getting getting ready for when we're called up to come next. I guess that would keep you pretty busy, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, since you got your start as a producer at a young age, is there any advice you would give to young or, or youngish people thinking about pursuing that path? Yeah, you know, I think I dropped out of college uh, as soon as I got there. Um, you know, I lasted oh. I lasted a couple weeks at, at my school on the Upper East Side here in Manhattan. Um, and going to school was more about getting to New York than it was anything else. Um, and so I think I don't think I'm in a place to offer much advice. But if I if I were, I would say there are so many amazing artists in this city who want to make work, and who should be making work, and. The producer's role is so much about cultivating relationships with artists who are making the best possible work. And, you know, the, I would say the thing that, you know, went right when I got here was I very early started surrounding myself with amazing artists and finding ways to help champion what they were doing. And that tribe that we built and have, have grown and, you know, have found more people to, to and more artists who inspired us and challenged us has been the base of Seaview Production success. And so, but that's just one small crop, right? That's sort of in our tribe. There's many more tribes of, of amazing artists and producers who can help realize visions. And so it's just about, you know, there's lots of courses you can take and, you know, lots of money you can spend going to big fancy schools, but it's like the work just has to get made. And I always say I'm very happy for a lot of reasons and I'm sure the larger society is very happy that, you know, I'm not a doctor. Um, <laughs> Me too. But we don't have to be, right? Like uh, the, the path to becoming a doctor or lawyer is so specific, right? The path to becoming a creator is so not. It's so whatever you want to make it. And so, you know, I, I think it's just about, and, and, and I feel that way about actors, right? I feel that way about producers, certainly. 
um, about writers. It's just about starting to, if you wait for your agent to call so you can get that appointment or you wait for, you know, a festival to appear out of nowhere so you could submit your play, you're never going to get the work done. Yeah. But if you just go make the work, eventually you'll just keep making the work and the zeros will just, you know, add up. It all just gets more expensive <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're on Broadway. Right. I think right. that's how it works. <laughs> you're figuring it out. Totally. Find good people. Totally. In other words, yeah. Look for them and find them. Um, well, speaking of which, can you tell us about any productions you have on the fire? I just got an exciting release about something you're doing with Rachel Shafkin. Is yes. that correct? Yes. Uh, we are bringing what I think is one of the most extraordinary new musicals to the La Jolla Playhouse in the spring. It's a musical called Lampika, based on the life and art of a Polish painter named Tamara de Lampika, who was painting at the same time as Picasso and Chagall, and we don't know her name. She was one of the amazing forces of nature who created the Art Deco movement, but she was a woman painting in that time, and she was erased from her history books, our history books that were all written by men. And she has this extraordinary story. Our particular story focuses on a love triangle of her husband, Tadeusz, and her muse, who then became her lover, a woman named Rafaela. Um, and Eden Espinosa plays Lampika in an extraordinary turn. Mm. Rachel Chavkin, who of course won a Tony Award last year for uh, Hades Town, um, directs um, a, quite a quite a spectacle of a show. It's a twenty plus person cast, um, a sweeping story. Started at the Williamstown Theater Festival in Massachusetts, and will be at uh, La Jolla Playhouse in the spring. That's definitely something to look forward We're to excited. in New York. As well soon, hopefully. That's at some the plan. point. That's the at plan. At some point. Uh, well, since the title and mission of this podcast is Develop Your Character, I'd like to wrap by kind of asking what character means to you uh, in terms of theater, outside theater. Totally. You know, the more time I spend on Broadway, the smaller the world is, right? And I think even when we just think about the actual physical space Broadway occupies, it's 10 blocks in an island, you know, in the U.S., uh, here in New York. And it's it's small, and the community is small, and, you know, it's a lot of the same players, you know, every season, right? Seasons turn, and a lot of people come and a lot of people go for different reasons. Uh, I'm 27 now, um, and I want to... Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> You look 27, but I didn't think you could be. So wait, how old are you when Gentleman's Guide? I was 19, 20, 2019, I don't know. Oh, but, wow. But, you know, I want to I want to I want to spend my life working on these 10 blocks. And it became very apparent very quickly that to do that, you have to be a good person. Because the most of the time when people come and go, and there's that's for a variety of reasons, but the easiest way to come and go is to not be a good person. Because the world is just too small. And yes, just Broadway, but also the world globally. And if we're not good to each other, and frankly, Broadway is like such a crazy business that if you're not here to like be a good person and make good art and be ethical and like just try to do the best thing, then you're in the wrong world because you're never going to make billions doing this anyway. So you might as well go be a bad person and make a lot of money. <laughs> so I think the realization about developing character has been to stick around in a space as small as this, and I think you could say that probably about any industry, right? How, yeah. how big is any industry? It's just like you have to be a good person and lead with that. And then I, I maybe I'm a sucker, but I think that leads to good things. 
Yeah, let's hope so. And it's a very strong uh, sense of community in the theater oh world as well. Amazing. Uh, that I that I know that I've been told many times. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks again, Greg. We Thank very you. much have enjoyed having you here. And thanks to all of you who've tuned in to this episode of Develop Your Character. We are always looking for listeners' input. So if you have a question or observation about Greg or something we've discussed here or anything else theater or character related, you can reach us on social media. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can also leave a review on iTunes or share with your friends on social media. And for more information on Camp Broadway, Broadway's original destination for theater-loving kids like Greg mm -hmm. was like yesterday, <laughs> check out our site at campbroadway.com. Thanks to all of you who've tuned into this episode of Develop Your Character. We're always looking for listeners' input, so if you have a question or an observation, anything else theater or character related, you can check out Camp Broadway's Facebook or Instagram page. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can leave a review on iTunes or share with your friends on social media. And for more information on Camp Broadway, Broadway's original destination for theater-loving kids, check out our site at campbroadway.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot -E 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 org because only together we rise.